What a challenging time to be an investor. We're seeing rising inflation while economic growth slows, which conjures up real concerns of dreaded stagflation. At the same time, we're seeing asset valuations stretch to many of their highest levels on record, raising worries for a painful correction in the markets. What are prudent options for investing during daunting market conditions like these? Well, the answer may lie in anti-bubbles. We're looking at assets that are grossly artificially cheap based on a misconception. As such, it's a matter of when, not if, that the anti-bubble will explode higher. Okay, so they are a form of extreme value. The second dimension of the concept is assets that they're effectively a mirror image of the bubble. Anti-bubble, uh, bubbles and anti-bubbles are two reflections of the same uh, uh, process. They're effectively driven by the same misconception. So by construction, the, mis the moment the misconception is understood, the bubble and anti-bubble move simultaneously. That's why I use it as a, as a hedge. Hello, and welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets. This week, we are guest, uh, we're joined by uh, a wonderful guest that's been requested by a number of our uh, audience members, uh, who is a partner at Quadriga Asset Managers in Madrid. He's got 20 years experience working for major Wall Street firms as a macro analyst and a money manager, specializing in commodities. And he's well known for advocating that during times of high speculation, like we see in the markets today, savvy investors can benefit by identifying what he calls anti-bubbles to put their capital into. I'm talking, of course, about Diego Perea. Uh, Diego, thank you so much for joining us today from your offices in Spain, no less. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. Well, Diego, let's start with a question I like to ask all of our guests uh, before introducing any possible biases on my end, uh, positively or negatively. What is your current assessment of today's economy and financial markets? Look, um, I think to, to put some, some perspective, um, I think we're in a paradigm shift. Um, I would summarize the last decade as the transformation of risk-free risk interest into interest-free risk. And, and what happened throughout the past decade with artificially low interest rates, you know, infinite amount of liquidity and monetary and fiscal policies without limits, what we've done is we've basically uh, created a, a, an artificial setup, which has led to what in my opinion are um, bubbles that by now are too big to fail. So we find ourselves in this situation where uh, the past decade, which has been turbocharged by COVID and the monetary and fiscal response has led to these enormous bubbles that are uh, systemic. So think about what would happen to, to the economy, to the world, if um, uh, interest rates were to go up, if things were to, to be normalized. So. I think to your question on the economy itself, I think there's still a significant disconnect between what, uh, where the economy is and where the markets are telling us with effectively valuations uh, near or at all-time highs. The problem with this, as I mentioned, is these bubbles that are now systemic 
effectively will lead into what I think is the next decade. The next decade for me is in one sentence is the transformation of bubbles into inflation or perhaps more accurately stagflation. So I think the, the, this uh, process by which we have uh, created these monetary and fiscal policies without limits, this idea that you can actually solve problems by printing money and taking debt, it's a, it's a fallacy. You're not uh, solving any problems. What you're doing is several things. You're delaying the problems. You're kicking the can down the road in, in the form of debt and intergenerational issues. Second is you are transferring the problem in the form of currency wars and trade wars, basically trying to pass the problem to, to your neighbor and defending yourself. We are transforming the problem into inequality and inflation. And unfortunately, we are enlarging the problem in the form of bubbles and, and social. And so this dynamic is very obvious if you're in, in Latin America and Argentina or, or, or Venezuela, this idea that you can solve problems by printing and, and borrowing money, it's, it's obvious what, what the outcome has been. And I think in some ways, the world is going into these two paths, you know, the Japanification of the world and the Argentinification of the world. And they are, it's a world that overall is, from a market's perspective, things are extraordinarily artificial and way more fragile than they may look. And these bubbles that are now the real systemic risk will lead to a process where every shock is met with more of the same, more money printing, more debt, and this will, in my opinion, lead to uh, this dynamic of inflation accelerating within a not very healthy economic setup, which is the absolute nightmare scenario called stagflation. Okay, um, so that is not a terribly rosy outlook. Um, not that I disagree with any of it. Um, so uh, you. you you had a lot of great points in there. Um, I love the expression, by the way, of, of transforming from risk-free interest uh, to interest-free risk. Um, but you talked about this sort of um, collection of bubbles that you, know, you see the world in right now as being too big to fail. And I think by that, you mean sort of policymakers will step in whenever needed to, to try to keep them going for as long as they can. And you see that manifesting in kind of a, a chronic stagflation. And you know, I guess when we think about bubbles, um, we always sort of think about the inevitable bursting of the bubble and the deflationary aspects that that, that has in, in the price deflation. Um, do you see this manifesting at some point in, um, is, is this period punctuated with deflationary periods as the bubbles correct and then the, the central planners step in? Or is there just sort of a universal commitment to do whatever it takes to keep them inflated and we're, we're, we're not really going to have a crash. We're just going to end up in sort of a currency crisis uh, worldwide where the, the fiat currencies are basically destroyed in the pursuit of trying to keep these bubbles elevated. I think all you said is correct. I think basically the, if this was a, a chess game and, and you're looking at, at, at the possible moves, uh, we're in this situation where by trying to avert the, uh, the collapse, I mean, let, let's look at Q4 2018, okay? And let's put some history be, before that. We have a situation where, you know, throughout, you know, from 08 to 2018, you know, we have had this 
process of well uh, 2015 rather you know qe then negative interest rates in europe infinite amount of liquidity blah 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 we got to the point where we decided okay things are a little bit better let's normalize things let's taper the programs and then let's hike rates and we were in this steady mode where uh, in, in a funny way if you look at the relationship between long-term rates and short-term rates long-term rates have been a reasonably good predictor of how high the, the tightening cycle can go before you blow up. So it's almost like the, 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 the bond market is, it has a lot of information. And that level was around 6.5% uh, 2001. It was around 5% in 2008. And we didn't quite get to 25 3% when things blew up in 2018. And I think that was the point, you know, Goldman and others were calling for steady hikes and things to go way higher. That was a wake up call for central banks who said, oh, my God, you know, of course, we've built all this debt for the past decade. Uh, and, you know, Ceteris Paribus, if we put rates back to where they were, I need to pay twice the amount of, of, of interest, right? Right to service. So in a funny way, there's a very linear relationship between Ceteris Paribus, assuming constant duration or whatever, between the amount of debt and how much you, you pay. And we're in that situation where, uh, you know, you know that if you hike rates, the system will blow up and, and it will do just by, by its own weight. Right. And so the question is, it, they're obviously going to try to they're trying to find this fine balance between, OK, how do I uh, avoid the thing from collapsing by giving some support and, 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 and hoping the economy catches up with, with the markets, whilst you know, the degree of freedom is perhaps overheating the economy with too much liquidity, too much fiscal, too much whatever. And, and this is the, the, the fine line. You know? And this is why the, the moment where we're today is so interesting in terms of the, the paradigm shift, because I believe we're in a way changing the rules of the game. So what you described in some way also is what, what does the textbook say? The textbook says, look, if inflation comes, we hike interest rates and that's it, right? <laughs> the problem is that if inflation comes and you hike interest rates, by hiking interest rates, you blow the bubbles, which are deflationary, and you no longer have the inflation problem. So do I, what do I do? Do I hike rates and blow the things off? Or what do we do? Or do we let them run and prevent them? And I think the the approach from the Fed, it's clearly telling you dismissing any kind of inflation. First of all, they've been telling us for a long time that the enemy is deflation. Guys, the enemy is deflation. We really want and need inflation. Then you're starting to get inflation now. It's being argued that it's, it's uh, transient, it's, it's, it's temporary. And there are a lot of things that are telling us that, again, this inflation-deflation debate is, is fascinating because as you well pointed out, the, the extremes are not that far from each other. Okay, and uh, right. it's more of a circle. It's more of a circle than than a, than a straight line. And uh, and you can look at the deflationary forces in the system, and there are plenty of them. You know, unemployment, uh, poor economic uh, activity, demographics, uh, technology, demographics, overcapacity, malinvestment. All these are deflationary forces, which have been so strong that there's been some kind of freebie for central banks to print as much as they want without really creating an inflation. But that process of apparent stability is actually 
the, the, the offsetting of two pretty large forces where the printing side is only getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think in that set, you know, the risk of the bubbles is, is meaningful and, uh, and, and they would be very deflationary. You're correct. My view is it's a little bit like what happened with, in the US with MMT, right? Do I let all these people lose their jobs? In which case I need to pay them benefits and then hope that they get back. Or do I just pay the companies, you know, to prevent them from laying people off because I'm I'm gonna have to pay anyway, so I might as well do it up front. And 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 so the central banks are just saying, and governments are saying, guys, and we can do this by the way without increasing taxes <laughs> because we have this great guy here called the central bank who's gonna uh, print its its way to infinity just to to finance us. And and I think that creates lots of, lots of issues. You, you mentioned the, the currency debasement and wars. I think one of the risks is the US is, is in some way uh, abusing its position of power, right? Uh, by in some ways uh, clearly favoring, as, as you would expect, the domestic US guy. So if you think about let's print uh, $5 trillion, if you're a Chinese saver or a Japanese saver or a European saver who has treasuries as dollars, you have that money because you have faith that they will respect you, they won't dilute you. But what's happening in some ways is a very clear uh, uh, for the, the domestic guy at the expense of whoever owns dollars. And so this, this process of, you know, in a way, abusing your position of power, trying to dilute the dollar, using the dollar to, to finance uh, uh, the, the expansion and, and do it without increasing taxes is like just um, panacea, right? But there are some costs in the process and some checks and balances. And, and, and we know, uh, we mentioned some of them like inflation or inequality. And these are things that are, are real and they will lead to other effects such as <laughs> taxation, trying to bring things all back. And it's all part of the same circle. But, uh, but yeah, I think the, the, the problem if I may say so, or, or there are you know, different ways to look at it. But from an investor's perspective, how, how the hell do we position ourselves against this, this myriad of, of issues? And I like to use the analogy of, um, of, of a team, right? When you build a portfolio, you need a team. And there are really two key dimensions you need to take into consideration. The first one is some sort of risk on risk off balance. It's the idea of um, you know, where the trigger is volatility. Okay? I think volatility is the key anti-bubble or anti-bubble in the system. It's the uh, measure that effectively, uh, I use the, as an engineer, I use the analogy between fluid mechanics and, and, and the markets. You, know, you have laminar and turbulent regime. The markets are laminar or linear or well-behaved in a low volatility environment. Once volatility breaks above X, call it, 40. Uh, volatility, effectively, the market becomes chaotic. Uh, and, and this chaotic level creates a process of uh, increased volatility, increased value at risk, forced liquidation, polarized correlations, forced liquidity, and then things collapse in a very mechanical manner. And, and, and this dynamic, when you think about the portfolio, you need strikers, you need defenders, you need both pieces. But you also need to consider from a long-term perspective whether those strikers or defenders are long or short inflation. And I think today you need to be mindful of those bubbles and the risk that they blow up because central banks effectively lose control. 
but you know that if and when they did, 100% guaranteed, they're gonna come back with more of the same. And that more of the same will be yield curve control, will be more printing, will be more stuff, which will try to bring things back. So plan A and the ideal scenario for them is they create sufficiently high inflation that it, it dilutes the problem over time, but not high enough that it will get the, the frog to jump out of the boiling water and, and to do it in a way that you're avoiding the collapse. So I think the priority is let's avoid the collapse. Let's uh, let inflation run, but hopefully not too hot. And this is the very, very fine uh, process they're trying to, to run with, with, the, with the danger that every time the bubble is higher and, uh, and you're really facing uh, more downside and more asymmetry. So it's, it's really, uh, you know, all these variables that we as investors need to, 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 to play to try to protect ourselves both in, in nominal and, and real terms, which is uh, the name of the game uh, right now is it, it, dramatically changing. You know, if I, I have a teenager boys, right? And, and if I have to explain them the markets to them, I'd say, look, they, they play video games, right? I'd say there's three levels in this video game, right? Called markets. The first one is you need to make money in nominal terms. So you need to turn $100 into more than $100. That'll be level one. That's easy, okay? Uh, you can put money in fixed income and that's it. You made some money. Level two is can you make money in real terms? So can you actually beat inflation? Now pretty much the entire spectrum is in negative uh, real yields. And the third one, which is yet to come in a bigger way, is can you make money in real terms after taxes? And, 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 and this is how they close the circle and how this mess <laughs> keeps, keeps evolving. But I, I think it's, it's a very clear direction of, of where we're moving with the risk of bubbles and inflation being, uh, being, being both huge and relevant. Um, guys, so many great things to what you said there. And I actually love the video game analogy. Um, and I think that level three is probably going to get a lot harder going forward to uh, looking at uh, government regimes. And, and certainly in America, you know, we're seeing an increased appetite for taxation going forward. Um, so uh, you, you, you talked about the thread is sort of trying to thread a needle here, right? It's got it's stuck between fire and ice, right? If, if inflation runs too hot, it's got to raise rates. Uh, and then if that happens, uh, you, you risk you know, bursting these bubbles, collapsing the system. So question for you, Diego, do you, do you expect the, the, with your best guesstimate, do you expect the Fed to, to largely be able to finesse that so that that line is relatively stable and steady? Or do you see us ping-ponging back and forth between the ceiling and the floor here? In other words, a much more volatile future going forward where the Fed is dialing up, dialing down, dialing up, dialing down. You know, how, how smoothly can they, how smooth can they make that trajectory in your opinion? I think the, if I was in their shoes, what I would play is, and the way that I think they will do this is, uh, and, and this ties into the debate of tapering and hiking rates and, uh, and, and yield curve control. And what, what could be interesting is it's, pretty obvious and very difficult to justify that you continue to do 120 billion a month. Okay, that's just out of scope with the level of uh, recovery with COVID, you know, hopefully coming out of the woods and the markets are all time highs and whatever. So it's, it's really hard to justify 
So the, the tapering, the T word is scaring the hell out of a lot of people for the right reasons. But if they do, uh, it's going to be a very slow process. It's going to be glacial. So they might say, okay, we'll start tapering, but guys, don't worry. It'll be 110 for a while, right? So the market it gets open to the idea and that tapering, it's less, but it's still happening. The second thing that I would expect is they, they may combine it with some sort of operation twist. So they say, yeah, I'm going to buy less, but you know what? I'm going to buy it with long, longer average duration. And this is really a very smart way, in my opinion, to, uh, to, to, to remove the, 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 some degree of the accommodation, but increase it through duration by keeping long-term rates. And that's, that would be actually could even be a positive news for the market. So you, you could see a taper scenario. It's obviously incredibly supportive for uh, things like uh, gold and, 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 other, and other assets. But it could well be that if they let this run too hard, too long, they will have to respond uh, with uh, yield curve control even before they have an opportunity to taper. So this is where it's interesting. So far, for example, the, uh, the, the Bitcoin volatility or other events we've seen recently like Archegos or others or ARC, they haven't really had any meaningful event yet. I think part of the reason is because the stereotypical um, crypto guy is unlikely to be in the S&P. It's probably <laughs> in, in something more esoteric. So it's not like, but they are short gold. So they've been buying gold. Uh, but uh, I think that that's going to be an interesting one. So the, the question for me is if they let it run too far, they run the risk that the bubble start to hurt, whether it's because of their own weight or some catalyst, in which case they will do YCC yes or yes. Or if the market holds and they decide by Jackson Hole or, or whenever to taper, you know, whether you do that on a standalone basis at glacial pace in conjunction with yield curve control or operation twist. And in any scenario, even if the taper takes place and the amount of buying is reduced in, 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 in the, the, the speed at which is happening, the pace, you would still be a long way before you hike long-term rates. And that continues, sorry, short-term rates. And that continues to feed the pressure for, for inflation, which, it's given them time to try to dilute the, the problem. So I think one way or another, whatever they do, they'll be very cautious and they're always going to err on the side of let's not upset the markets and we'd rather overrun and overheat from the inflation side rather than risking the bubbles. And that only creates bigger bubbles that make the problem harder to, to, to manage later. And that's, that's the fine balance. Yeah, you know, we have a lot of people here watching th this video who are concerned about current, you know, levels of valuation or maybe better put levels of overvaluation based upon historic metrics. Um, and so there's a lot of people that are worried about, um, 
you know, putting money into this market because it could correct by a large amount. Um, you have the, the Jeremy Granthams of the world who are, you know, out there pretty publicly saying, hey, just when we've seen these market factors in the past, it's always been followed in the near term by a 50 plus percent market correction. Now, nobody knows, you know, the future that may or may not happen. Sounds like you think the Fed is going to try to be as cautious as possible, you know, to, to, to not unleash the volatility monster. But, you know, the Fed isn't all powerful. Um, so anyways, I, I want to move on to the, the team that, that you know, you think is the right team to recruit for a portfolio in this type of environment. Um, but I guess real quick before we do two things. One, if you could just just comment on what I just said there about volatility and Grantham's crash. You know, in other words, do you how much do you fear things just getting out of the hands of the central planners in the short term? and leading to a very sizable market correction. <clears throat> um, and then if you can, after answering that, talk about, um, I mentioned the term anti-bubble when I introduced you. Um, you have this sort of framework and outlook that involves investing in anti-bubbles. If you could just define what an anti-bubble is before we get to recruiting a team uh, to invest in them, that'd sure. be great. Sure, so let's start with the volatility. And I think uh, volatility is an anti-bubble. I'll discuss shortly what, what it means. But, uh, but the, I think volatility is, you know, which can come any, any minute, any second for any reason, uh, it creates a very mechanical process that as I described earlier, you know, moves the market from a laminar regime to a turbulent regime. And in a turbulent regime, the, the process that follows is, is, as I said, mechanical. It's, it's really difficult to stop it. When it, I, I use the analogy of driving a car at, you know, 200 miles an hour when the speedometer says 80, right? If you have an accident, boom, what do you feel? Well, you feel the real speed you were running at, regardless of what the speedometer said. And this is a little bit what happens with volatility. You might have low realized and implied volatility might give you the perception that you don't have a lot of risk in your portfolio, but the risk ex ante is what it is, is whatever you're running. So people will, it might be running way more risk than they're aware. So once volatility starts to go up, both implied and realized, your value at risk goes up, your boss calls you and says cut risk or your risk manager or your stop loss or whatever. And that creates a process where as volatility goes up and the value at risk goes up, you're forced to reduce positions. If everybody has the same trade, and you're trying, liquidity starts to thin up. And then effectively this forced liquidation creates, it's very simple. You know, once volatility explodes, it's 100% about speculative position in the market. Two plus two is no longer four. It's just about the spe specs. You look at the orange juice market, the orange juice market's up, it was short. Silver is down, it was long. Gold is up, market was short. There's nothing to discuss, okay? It's very mechanical. Very simple. And this process where correlations actually polarize to plus one or minus one creates an exponential increase in value at risk, which is a function of both volatility and correlations. And this is something that it's the reason why when these things go are very difficult to stop and they go way farther than anybody anticipates because it's your, your risk parity, your, your trend followers, your vol targeting are being stopped out. The mirror image of that is what we're seeing lately. So volatility collapses to 18, 17, and it's dragging in all these guys. So it's the guys that buy things at 17, 15 volt that puke at 25, 30 volt, and they compound the effect. 
So volatility is critical and you need both legs in your portfolio. You need things that will be asymmetric and make you money uh, you know, in, in both regimes. The other point I want to mention related to Grantham's and, and the crash is, is a very important point that I don't think people understand well enough. Okay, And you mentioned and correctly that most people agree, not just your listeners, but most people would agree that equity valuations are high in absolute terms. There's not really much to discuss okay, about that. The debate is more about the relative uh, valuations, okay? what people call uh, risk premia or equity risk premia. And what equity risk premia is trying to do is basically saying, okay, let's try to compare apples with apples. So we all know what the yield on fixed income is. This is a pretty simple computation, the implied yield, the 10-year treasuries are yielding X or 30 years Y. But when you try to create this idea of uh, equity yield right, by effectively uh, creating some sort of models that, that look at as if they were some sort of a bond, and then you compare the, the premia, the equity risk premia, you find very interesting things. I mean, uh, to start, one of the things you, you, you find is that people are comparing things like the S&P or the NASDAQ to 10-year treasuries. Okay, if you actually, this is a very basic mistake. Why? Because if you actually look at the yield and you do the model for uh, your S&P or the, the NASDAQ, and you actually work out the duration of the sensitivity to interest rates and the, and the duration of those, our analysis shows that the S&P has about 28 years of duration. The NASDAQ has 40 to 50 years of duration. Okay, So when you think about what happens to long-term interest rates going up, you obviously realize that the sensitivity of these things, you are looking at the, the more growth in the equity, the more sensitive to long-term rates. But what it shows is this fallacy that equities are cheap relative to fixed income. Because you, what you should do is you cannot compare apples with pears. If you want to compare you know, uh, the S&P with uh, treasuries, you should use like for like duration. So you should really be comparing the S&P with 30-year treasuries or the uh, NASDAQ with 40 to 50-year treasuries. And if you do that, you see that the equities are not only expensive in absolute terms, but also in relative terms. Okay, And this is part of the reason where, by which, or I mentioned that you cannot hike interest rates. Yeah, the back end is going up to a level that is sort of trying to predict how high they can go short-term rates before we blow up. But ultimately, the average duration, a lot of people, I don't know, here in, in Europe, for example, uh, a large, a very large percentage of mortgages are uh, short-term floating, okay? So it doesn't really matter what's happening to 30-year rates because you're financing yourself at Euribor plus 90 basis points. At the short end of the curve, yeah. And, and Euribor is minus 50 basis points. <laughs> you're, it's like you're paying, you know, 40, 50 bids. So in that sense, you really need short-term rates to go before you see some of that impact. And that is very unlikely to happen. And, and I think the bigger the bubbles, you know, the, 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 the more pressure you have on the long end, both as a signal of how high you could ever hike before you blow up, as well as this response that you can't hike, therefore, you know, uh, you, you will see also YCC. I'm of the view, and this is a very contrarian view, that, and I've been saying this for a while, that we will have both inflation and zero rates. 
And this is a change in the rules of the game because this is the way Europe and Japan have gone. You, it's my point that inflation is it's more relevant and more important to prevent the bubbles from imploding than, uh, than, than basically letting inflation run. And this is something that the bluffs from the central banks will be uh, checked and we'll see how they react and when, but they're going to be in a very difficult spot. With that, I move on to the concept of anti-bubble um, and, and basically, which is the title of, of my book and uh, the concept that I, I coined, which is, is very simple in a sense. But let me start with uh, George Soros' definition of a, of a bubble, okay, or my interpretation. And Soros talks about assets that are artificially expensive based on a belief that happens to be false. It happens to be a misconception. So bubbles are basically processes where the emperor had no clothes, okay? Now, what I did as, a, as an engineer, I said, okay, I generalized the process. And by, by that, I mean, okay, misconceptions can distort reality, but not only with artificially high valuations, which we call bubbles, we could also have artificially low valuations, which is what I call an anti-bubble or anti-bubble, yeah? Potato, potato. So in that sense, uh, there are three dimensions to the concept of anti-bubble. The first one is we're looking at assets that are grossly artificially cheap based on a misconception. As such, it's a matter of when, not if, that the anti-bubble will explode higher, okay? So th they are a form of extreme value. The second dimension of the concept is assets that they're effectively a mirror image of the bubble. Anti-bubble, uh, bubbles and anti-bubbles are two reflections of the same uh, uh, process. They're effectively driven by the same misconception. So by construction, the, mis the moment the misconception is understood, the bubble and anti-bubble move simultaneously. That's why I use it as a, as a hedge and why I called it anti-bubble. It's a bit like an antivirus or an anti-missile. It's a defense mechanism against the bubble. And the third element of the concept is the idea of risk premium, being a contrarian. The idea that, and I'll give you an example. If you think about the relationship between the S&P and the VIX, for me, it's a very clear bubble anti-bubble relationship. Why? Because you could have basically artificially low volatility can contribute to artificially high equity prices. And this happens both through qualitative drivers, such as complacency and perception of low risk, the fact that mommy and daddy will always be there to cover our, our back, and quantitative process, such as CTAs or risk parity or vault targeting, that are strategies that the lower the volatility, the more the buy. And so effectively, this, this concept of anti-bubble, uh, which I think it's, it's now uh, being widely uh, understood and, and accepted, is, is powerful in, in multiple ways and allows us, it gives us you know, a, a tool to try to, to build portfolios in, in this highly artificial world. So with that, I go to the last part of your question, which is a very <laughs> loaded question. We hope you've been enjoying this conversation with European money manager, Diego Perea. The interview continues in part two, where Diego explains in detail exactly how he's allocating his portfolio for today's market environment. To watch part two, just click on the link provided in the description below this video. 
or go to youtube.com slash Wealthion. But before you go, please don't forget to click the subscribe button below if you haven't already. Oh, and if you'd appreciate a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who takes into consideration both the macro risks and the market opportunities mentioned by Diego, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you over at part two of our interview with money manager Diego Perea.